I am an orphan now. And that's sad, but it's not tragic. Because for over 57 years, I lived in this world not as an orphan, but instead as the son of exceptionally loving parents, because God is so good to me. But now my new reality is that no one is ahead of me. There's no buffer generation. Parents, great-grandparents, all that I had in my life, they are all gone now, and I'm up to bat. But here's the thing. I feel a new energy and a new intensity to my life, and I have to say, I like how it feels. Now, I don't know if you're going to like how what I feel <laughs> feels to you. Buckle up. But I got to say, you know, I have to step up. I don't have time to waste. I've got to get on with it. And that's true for every one of us in this room. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how many generations are in front of you. Our lives, all of our lives, as believers in Christ, should be marked by an intensity of purpose. And as the Lord gives me life, and as the Lord gives me strength, my goal is to lead us together in that purpose. To ground us in it, to focus us on it, to stir up a feeling of intensity and urgency concerning it. Because you know what? The time is now. The time is now. Our world, our city, our friends, our neighbors, our family members, they need from us as individuals. They need from us as a church to be intensely purposeful. One of the clearest, most concise, most direct statements of that purpose is found in what we have come to call the Great Commission. Jesus parting words to his church before he returned to his Father in heaven. So we're going to look at the Great Commission. And Lord willing, after we finish the Great Commission, we're going to go immediately into Acts chapter 2 where we see the means whereby the early church found the power to carry out the great commission Jesus gave to them. Now, as we come to the great commission, I am reminded of the words of the old hymn we used to sing when I was growing up. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Of life. Uh, my goal in looking at the Great Commission isn't to tell you something you don't already know or, or something you haven't heard before. My goal is to put before us these familiar words. And my prayer is that as we look at them again, we will see them in new ways, in fresh ways. That this commission will challenge us in ways that it never has before, especially especially should it be true that right now, in this moment, our lives are not intensely defined by obedience to the Great Commission. Because as believers in Christ, our lives must be defined by the Great Commission, both as individuals and as a church. So having said that, 
Let's turn to the word of the Lord, the Great Commission is found in Matthew chapter 28. So if you take your Bibles or your phones, whatever, and turn to Matthew 28, and when you found your place, if you'll stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. We need you now, Spirit of God, to open our hearts and our minds to them, to understanding them, to seeing who you are through them, what you require of us. And so, once again this morning, we would wait on you and your good work in us. We pray that you would help us gaze intently on your word, that we would do our parts Lord, to to actively participate with you as your word is preached. Bless the reading. Bless the hearing of your word. Lord, may it not return back to you void. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It can be difficult to know where to begin when you are tackling uh, this topic of, of the Great Commission. So I'm so very thankful that John inadvertently threw me a softball last week when he was preaching that set me up for this week when he quoted one of his professors who said, the heart of Christian counseling is asking two fundamental questions, who is God and who am I? Two identity questions. Now, it's nice to have the backing of someone who has Ph.D. behind their name. Because one of the repeated themes of my ministry has focused on this idea of identity. Because I have discovered that most problems and most chaos and most turmoil that people experience in their lives, it occurs because they have forgotten who Christ is or they have forgotten who they are in Christ, or they have forgotten both, or they never knew it in the first place. And so when you believe that identity, who He is and who He has made you to be is not good enough. When you believe the identity He's given you and who He is isn't powerful enough or strong enough, then you attempt to create a different identity. A better identity, an identity you believe is more powerful for yourself. And let me tell you, 57 years of living my own life and almost 30 years of ministry have taught me that never ends well. Never ends well for any of us when we attempt to to create an identity for ourselves. And more than that, it renders us ineffective in the purpose that God has given to us. Jesus. He knew 
his identity. John chapter 13 tells us that Jesus knew that he had come from the Father. He tells us that Jesus knew that he was returning to the Father. That was his identity. And so out of his identity, he acted. He did what was unthinkable to those who saw him do it. He washed their feet. And beyond that, a few hours later, he went to the cross knowing that Scripture says, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. But since Jesus' identity was foremost in his mind, his reputation was not. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, identity, it's powerful. And so I want to begin looking at the Great Commission with identity. Who who is God? What is His identity here? We see that in the Great Commission, He is a sender. Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, God in what is now glorified flesh, He sends. He says to His disciples, Go. Now listen, I'm compelled to take just a few moments to talk about the Greek. Now look, I wouldn't put you through this if it weren't absolutely necessary, but it is. It's necessary because of what you might have heard or learned about this verse. Though the word is translated go in most Bibles, many, many preachers, Many, many teachers often point out that the only imperative, the only command that's actually contained in this verse is the command to make disciples. And then they will tell you that the word translated go is, in fact, it's not a command at all. It's not an imperative. It is simply an adverbial participle that describes the command to make disciples. Now listen, all that absolutely true. And so it's suggested that Jesus' uh, command here should be translated, as you go, make disciples. So as you go through life, make disciples of people you encounter. That is true as well. But here comes the but. But it is also true that the Greek language has something called a participle of attendant circumstance. <laughs> a participle of attendant circumstance. Now, if anybody actually went to work anymore, if we were actually allowed to have water coolers, you could impress all your friends tomorrow uh, with uh, uh, an imperative, a participle of a, a attendant circumstance. Anyway, when these participles appear, y'all are with me, right? When these participles appear, they take the full force of the command that follows. Now, Greek scholar, Bob Mounts, he was involved with translating the NIV, the New Living Translation, and especially the ESV. He writes that going here fits the typical structural pattern for the attendant circumstance participle and should not be translated as going or as you go, but instead as a command, go. Now, you made it through. (laughs) That's it. Now, I want to tell you why that's important. 
Because when we think Jesus is saying here, as you go, it doesn't really capture the entirety or the intensity or the urgency or the focus of go. Because listen, what if you don't go into the world? What if you prefer to stay home and watch Netflix and order what you need from Amazon and Uber Eats? It could happen. It is happening. Uber Eats gross bookings in 2017 were $3 billion. In 2019, $14.5 billion. In 2020, an estimated $25 billion. Can you believe the increase? 2017, Uber Eats was available in 50 cities. In 2019, 500 cities. And in 2020, 1,000 cities. Last one. 2019, 220,000 restaurants used Uber Eats. 2020, 500,000. People are staying at home. Look, that's just Uber Eats. That's not the other food delivery services or the shop at home services. So it seems to me that we aren't going out into the world. So if we're not careful with our Greek, we could say, well, Jesus, you said, as you go, make disciples. But honestly, Lord, as the old song says, I just don't get around much anymore. We don't. We work at home. We watch at home. We shop at home. We eat at home. We go to church at home. And I believe that many of these habits are going to persist post-COVID. So what Jesus is doing here is requiring more of us than as you go, if you go, then make disciples. Jesus is commanding us to go because God is ascending God. It isn't for us to decide not to go. It isn't for us to make disciples only if we go. Jesus says go. We have to go. It's a command. It's not an option because we know his great purpose. And his great purpose is to have those from every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping around the throne. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, you'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We'll encounter these people in our neighborhoods, absolutely, as we go. But we also must be willing to intentionally go to them. Because God is a sender. That's his identity, and it's powerful. Because his identity reflects his heart. God could have chosen to identify as a sitter instead of a sender, a do-nothing God. And I don't care what happens to the world, God. He could have said, I created it. It was beautiful. You messed it up. You deal with it. But that's not who he is. He's ascending God. And he sins because of the great love and the compassion and the mercy that he feels toward us from the moment that sin first broke God's beautiful creation. God promised to send. And you can read that in Genesis 3, 15. 
God promised that he would send one who would crush the one who brought such deception and devastation. That that he would free people from that deception and rebuild what was devastated and destroyed. God loves, so he sends. Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham and he sends him to the land that he's going to show him. And God promises that through Abraham, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God sends because God loves, because he seeks to bless. Fast forward, at long last, Joshua stands at the edge of the promised land with God's people. The only thing between them and the promised land is the Jordan River. But how are they going to get across if they don't have boats? You don't have much need for a boat when you're wandering around in the dry, dusty desert for 40 years. So what does God do? He parts the water so that they walk across on dry land, just as he had done with the Red Sea. And then Joshua tells them why God did it. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. God makes the way clear to send his people into the promised land because he loves Because he wants all the nations of the earth, all the people of the world to know that love. We don't have time to look through all the prophets that God sent to his people. So I'm going to have to be content to focus on just one of them and let Isaiah represent the group. God gives Isaiah a glimpse, a vision of the worship of heaven. God allows Isaiah to overhear a conversation taking place in heaven. Isaiah writes, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? This is so amazing because this conversation is taking place in heaven between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what are they talking about? They're talking about who they should send into the world. Who they should send to people who have lost their way. Who they should send to people who never knew their way. People that Isaiah describes as people of unclean lips. Both him and his culture. So Isaiah can't contain himself when he sees what's going on in heaven. And and when he hears what's on the heart of God, whom shall we send? Isaiah responds, Lord, here I am. Here I am, Lord. Send me. And God says to Isaiah, what? Go. Go. God loves, so he sends. He loves those who have unclean lips. He loves those who have unclean ways. He loves those who are lost, so he sends. Let me ask you, is that good news? Then we come to Jesus. Luke records Jesus' first sermon. And in it, Jesus quotes from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has appointed me, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What good news? God sent Jesus to proclaim and to bring about. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the loving purpose of our sending God. Jesus 
is the ultimate fulfillment of the loving purpose of our sending God. Continuing in Luke 4, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. John chapter 4, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. John 5, Jesus said, Whoever hears my voice and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. Again in John 5, Jesus says, The very works I'm doing bear witness about, him, about me that the Father has sent me. John 6, Jesus said, This is the work of God that you believe in Him who has sent me. John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I could keep going and going, because guess what? Jesus says 27 more times in the next 15 chapters of John. That he's been sent by the Father. Over and over and over and over again. Jesus reminds us of the identity of our God. He is ascending God. Sending God. So whenever you think about God's identity. You must think of him as a sender. He sends people. He sends prophets. He sent his son. And then you've got to be humbled by why he sends. He sends because he loves and because there's such great need. Listen to these words. Zechariah spoke them when his son John the Baptist was born. After all those months of being silent, the Lord opens his mouth. And Zechariah speaks this about Jesus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven, it's about to break upon us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. God sends where there's great need to give light to those who only know darkness. To give life to those who only know death. To give peace to those who only know and experience hate and turmoil. So we cannot doubt the love of God. He sent to us. He sent for us. Listen, God didn't withhold. He didn't withhold. Retain. He didn't conceal or keep for himself. He, he didn't hinder. He didn't suppress. He sent. On January 22nd, a couple of weeks ago, a media outlet reported this story. Chinese officials say it could take 15 days to drill through 70 tons of debris to reach miners trapped underground for nearly two weeks because of an explosion in the gold mine. According to the state media, rescue teams are hoping to pull the miners out through a 28-inch diameter hole. Miners were able to get a note to the rescuers. The note said, we are heavily, 
exhausted and an urgent need of stomach medicine, painkillers, medical tape, external inflammatory drugs, and so on. Two days later, something happened. A huge obstacle blocking the well suddenly fell to the bottom of the shaft and the miners were rescued. Now we followed the stories of those miners, didn't we? We worried about them. We hoped for them. We prayed for them and for their safe rescue. Now listen, we have to see ourselves as those miners. Without Christ, we are just as desperate. Without Christ, we are just that hopeless. Without Christ, our needs are more dire. They are more urgent than those contained in the notes that the miners sent up. Without Christ, we will only exhaust ourselves trying to rescue ourselves. So what does God do? He sends, and He sends to rescue us. And what does God say? He says, every obstacle, every valley shall be filled up to get to us. And every mountain shall be brought low to get to us. And the crooked shall be made straight to get to us. And the rough places they'll be made plain to get to us. That's God's identity. He's a sender. And he sends for us. You got to know who God is. Because you know the world comes up with its own identity for God. Among many other things, they say that our sending God is harsh. That he's demanding, that he's exacting, that he's heartless and uncaring. Look, who would kill their own son? That he's intolerant and so forth and so on. You've heard it all and more besides. But don't let that drip and that drone deceive you or deaden your senses to the true identity of your God. He's a God who sins because he's a God who loves. David writes, what a testimony, in Psalm 18. He says, God sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me. In the day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Is that beautiful? So that's God's identity. He's ascending God. And what's our identity? It's very simple. We, you and I, we are those God is sending in this very moment into this very world with the good news of rescue through Christ. That's our identity, the sent ones. Our lives have to be defined by that identity, sent ones. We have to live intentionally out of that identity as sent ones. And that's going to mean for you and me that we've got to, to think 
a lot about what going looks like for us. It means we've got to ask a lot of questions of each other, maybe even in our community groups, not just once, but every day. What does it look like for me to go? Most importantly, it means we've got to pray. We've got to ask the Lord to show us, Lord, how do we live out of this identity? It means we have to ask the Lord in prayer to empower us to live as sent ones. Pray that the Lord will excite us about this possibility. That as we live out of our identity, as we go, that He will cause His kingdom to come. His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you like to see that? become a reality. Would you? For God's kingdom to come and His will to be done. If that's what we want, then let's go into all the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You once again for Your words. We pray, Lord, for conviction of your Holy Spirit to accept the identity that you've given to us and to live out of and that you would change the world through those of us who obey your command to go. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.